Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm chatting with Tom Daly. Tom completed the first solo Ireland circumnavigation by kayak in 1979, and it was quite an experience. It was far different time then, and we'll talk about the adventure itself, the gear, the freedom, and how this trip almost got him kicked out of the sport. Before we get to our chat with Tom, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. Everything from basic strokes and safety, to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries, and their latest edition, Expedition Skills. It's all in one place, so if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here's your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. Enjoy today's episode with Tom Daly. Hello, Tom. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Hello, John. Glad to be here. So I have talked with quite a few Ireland soloists, but none who did it in 1979 because there were no others in that, at that time. Tell us about you. As you say, I'm a 68-year-old old guy. I live in Killarney, County Kerry in Ireland, in the southwest of Ireland. I was born here, lived, grew up in a rural, very small rural village across the road, really, out the road. Got a notion in my late teens that I'd canoe around Ireland. I'd never been done. Guess I got the bug. Well, I grew up kind of, I suppose, as we all did then in the countryside with our playground. This was pre-television, pre-digital, all of that. I suppose the word adventure didn't come into the vocabulary. It was just something you did. The hills and all that were was the playground. I guess I was introduced to the formalities of what became known as adventure sports uh, during a school trip to uh, Shirkin Island. Now we've been born 1976-77. Shirkin Island is um, an island on the southwest coast and a guy called Matt Murphy who was uh, a kind of an amateur marine biologist set up a, a kind of an adventure school down there. Um, so I went down there and I learned this thing called rock climbing whereas climbing trees would have been the natural thing we would have done and canoeing and all that kind of thing. I left school then and went to a PE college in Limerick which is the biggest city in the southern part of Ireland apart from Cork and I suppose there was inducted into the formalities of canoe clubs and kayaking and all of that. I did some river kayaking I became a canoe leader with the Irish Canoe Union, as it was then, and that was a pretty basic kind of leadership course. This was all pre-sea kayaks. At that time, we had kind of big, beamy river, I suppose, kind of slalom-type kayaks, general-purpose kayaks. Did some sea paddling, I suppose. We fitted skegs to those big, beamy boats, did some sea paddling. Was also introduced to some sea paddling with the Irish Canoe Union through that leadership course. The West Coast like, would have been quite familiar to me. The South Coast it was kind of the native seashore. was what we would have considered normal type of territory. Small boats wouldn't have been unusual because we have the corrucks, the traditional corrucks down here, which are those small canvas-covered traditional fishing boats that evolved for the Atlantic here on the West Coast of Ireland. So the sea was 
kind of remote from me in a rural area, but at the same time familiar. So I moved on from that and just generally got this notion while I was still in college that I would canoe around Ireland, be the first to canoe around Ireland. It was initially conceived as a kind of an expedition, I suppose, for want of a better word. Four or five paddlers, support crew and all of that. At that time, I was a student, a bit naive, of course, no money. The concept was, I suppose, derided, really, in canoeing circles. I'm just one of these guys that gets the notion something sounds like a good idea and I kind of stick with it. So the project went from there. So you conceived the idea in 1977, right? It would have been around then, yeah, around that time. So at that point, you only had a year or so of, of experience in a in a kayak. Um, maybe two or three generally, you know, through just college stuff. Okay. Yeah, but not a, not a lot really, yeah. So that's quite a leap to go from growing up inland in Killarney and then moving to starting to play in boats at, in college and then deciding, make the leap, go solo. Uh, the solo leap took a little while. Um, there was kind of intermediate stages this was originally a five-person trip, right? Well, something of that nature, you know, <laughs> three, four, five, whatever. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. I suppose I would have written, read a lot of, you know, I would have read a lot about uh, various adventures and expeditions, especially climbing through the kind of the Chris, pre the, even pre the Chris Bonington period. You know, you had these big siege tactics on the big hills and all of that, and they gradually evolved into the Alpine style. So I suppose I had a similar type of path with this. As I say, I was I was quite young then, pretty naive. Obviously, the big trip wasn't going to work out. Didn't have the wherewithal for it. Wouldn't have worked anyway then. Kind of evolved into a two-man idea. Again, that didn't seem to work out. So eventually I said, just tell it. I'll just go alone. I'll just pack a kayak. I didn't even have a kayak. <laughs> I don't know if I had even seen a kayak at that stage. I'd read about them. And I'd go alone. So this was utter folly. But I don't know what it is in my personality that I just take these big deep dives and go for it. So why didn't the multiple person trip work? Why did you end up abandoning those diff- both those options? There was various reasons, I suppose. There weren't that many sea kayaks and to get a group together just proved impossible. Plus, you would need a, quite a bit of money just to put a support team together and all that and to organise it. Again, you must remember this was pre-digital days. Everything was either telephone or handwritten letter, all of that. We didn't have the type of networking that you have nowadays. I'm glad it didn't happen that way. It would have been just too complex and I wouldn't have been able to manage the, let's say, the human dynamics of it at the time, you know? Yeah. So sometime around, I suppose, maybe 78, I would have been still a student, I think, when I said I'd do that, or maybe I'd began, I graduated in 1977, would have been working from late 1977, I suppose 1978, I started putting the plan together, took a long time really. Didn't get much support from anywhere really, it was considered to be a mad idea. I was in the Irish Canoe Union. I was um, a canoe leader. There was an attempt made to expel me from the Irish Canoe Union. I still have a handwritten letter from the Irish Canoe Union advising me of the folly of the trip and advising me of my responsibilities to the sport and all of that. So that was the general attitude at the time. 
So they were going to kick you out for doing this trip? Uh, something like that, yeah. That was <laughs> on the grapevine. I haven't any written confirmation of that, but I have a very interesting letter, a quite a patronizing letter just advising me that sea, kayak, sea kayaking is dangerous. And the, what between the lines, what it says, you know, when you get killed, it's going to be very bad for our reputation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so the only ones that thought this was a good idea was you and Anne. And even <laughs> she might not have been convinced at first. <laughs> Anne, Anne was my girlfriend at the time. She is my wife now and mother of three of our children. And we have um, our three children. We have six grandchildren at this stage. So that'll <laughs> tell your listeners how far, how long ago this was. Uh, Anne was still a student. She was, I think, two years behind me in college. Anne was into canoeing and that kind of stuff as well. So I don't know if she thought it was a good idea, but she didn't say you shouldn't do it. <laughs> So Anne was supportive, and that was helpful, yes, certainly. So tell me about your kit. Just getting kit was a challenge. Well, kit, I suppose, in one sense was easy compared to nowadays. And I suppose for your listeners, just the, the, just the, I suppose, the more interesting thing about this would have been just of its time, set in its time context. And I suppose looking back now, I feel that I was lucky that I was able to do it then, in the way that I did it and in the time that I did it because people doing sea kayaking now won't have that opportunity to do it. It would be very hard to recreate that. I listened to Mike Conroy's edition of your podcast, for example, Mike paddled around Ireland and was, he referred me to you. And in his podcast, his first kind of problem on that trip was when his power bank ran out and he'd no power bank. <laughs> yes. And he had to put out an appeal on social media for assistance. And I thought <laughs> I was just lucky to escape all of that, you know. Uh, I'm not saying anything is wrong with it, of course. If, I'd have, if I was doing it again, I'd have the same types of problems and I've had those problems doing other types of things. But um, the trip was in a kind of a less complicated period, let's put it that way, which made things, of course, more difficult at the time. The kit, I didn't have a kayak, sea kayak. I think I'd never paddled a sea kayak actually up to maybe a couple of months beforehand. I eventually got a sea kayak. The Nordcap kayaks were, I think, maybe out about two years at that stage. Mm -hmm. And I think there was just one other type of those types of boats. So I got a Nordcap, I think, maybe April, March, April before the trip. It was just the hull and deck. There was no compartments, no hatches or anything like that in it. So I had to glass in the bulkheads myself, fit hatches, all of that, and kitted out. Everything, of course, had to be done by telephone, letter, all that type of stuff. Put together the camping gear, compass, learn navigation, get charts, all that type of stuff. Yeah, that was pretty challenging at the time. I mean, it sounds like a full-time job just to build the kit and get it all together and get the uh, get the charts and everything. Yeah, it was it, it was all pretty novel to me at the time. Thankfully, I've forgotten a lot of it now. But <laughs> I just when this came came up, I went into the attic and rooted through a few boxes, and I just found a bundle of everything relating to then. It, again, as it was pre-digital, so I suppose I'm lucky in the sense that I have all of the correspondence, handwritten and type correspondence in hard copy. I have um, a diary that I kept during the trip that I don't think I've read since. Mm -hmm. But I also have a series of articles I wrote for um, a magazine shortly after finishing. So I, I have those, which was a good reference point. But most of it I'd quite forgotten about. 
I, I do remember various bits and pieces, all right, of getting all that stuff together. And again, I wouldn't have had a lot of tools or anything like that at the time. But um, I got two hatches somewhere. There were two different types, I remember. One was a screw type and the other had a big lever on it um, with a separate aluminium cover. I don't know how I ended up with two different types. As I say, I glassed in the bulkheads myself, just put on deck lines, that type of thing. And then communication. You didn't have much in terms of communication available to you. Well, I had letters was, was the main thing. I, I had things got very complicated then before the trip. At that time, where I lived in rural County Kerry, it was still um, a kind of a wind-up telephone. You wound up the telephone and contacted you to the local post office. And if somebody picked it up there, they plugged you into the biggest post office in Tralee who plugged you into the automatic network. The bigger towns had automatic dial telephones. Then before my trip, the, the, there was a big post office strike, which meant there was no no post, nor no telephones of the of the manual type. Uh, and the bigger towns had automatic telephones, all right, dial telephones. So for for quite a long period, I had no communications unless I went somewhere to get a dial telephone. Uh, at that stage, I got work. I was teaching in uh, a small village in North Connacar called Bhorbui. That would be from September 70, 77. It would have been there in 78, yes, when I was putting the trip together, 70, early 79. So there was no telephone working from there. To get to a telephone, it was um, a 70-mile round trip to my sister's house in Killarney. There was no post either, so getting, getting stuff was problematic. So again, that's just the time it was, but... I don't know how we managed then meeting people and communicating and arranging, <laughs> arranging things, but that's what we did. So the post office ran the, ran the telephone system. The post office ran the telephone system, yeah. So your preparation, uh, tell me about your preparation for the trip. To jump forward, I suppose looking back on it, it's, I, I, I became a bike racer in later life. I did a lot of stuff in between. I got married to the said Anne, I suppose, 1981, I think, and a year or two later, a couple of years later, we had three kids and all of that. So kayaking and all that kind of stuff went by the boat for a long, long time. Did other kinds of things. Uh, always cycled a bit. In my mid-50s, when family were grown up and gone and had a bit of bandwidth, I took up the um, project, something similar to the kayaking thing of just becoming a bike racer, just become the best bike racer I could be. So I got into all of that quite deeply, would have read a lot about the science of training. I ended up being coaching, specialising in all the riders, became quite a decent coach. So looking back on the training, <laughs> looking back on the training and the nutrition and all that for, for my trip, like I, I would have been woefully underprepared by <laughs> by today's standards. Training now, we'd have a kind of a phase of training to train, just getting to a point where you're actually ready to uh, do serious training and I wouldn't even have been at that level, you know. It would have been, you know, maybe a trip or two at the weekend, maybe a couple of training sessions midweek and all that. But I wasn't well prepared at all and had a little clue about nutrition. So, yeah, I mean, the the, tra- the science of training just wasn't there yet. It just hadn't even been explored and hadn't, hadn't been considered. No, and uh, I th- that was, of course, detrimental to my performance, both that and the nutrition. Now, if I'm doing a, 
a wraith or something, depending on the length of it. And I've, I've done races from a 40-second sprint on the track to a six-and-a-half-day six ultra races. I could tell you how many grams of carbohydrate per hour <laughs> I'm ingesting, all of that type of stuff. I haven't a clue then, you know. Yeah. I would have lost a lot of weight during the trip. Food was hard to get at that time, just going up the west coast of Ireland. I had some dehydrated stuff I'd probably have got from England. We didn't have that type of energy food. The Probably the worst thing that happened is I gave up drinking. I had an episode drinking water, that is. During the during the day, I had an episode um, up in Donegal where the I had a water bottle on deck and the water bottle got washed away and I just never replaced it and I just um, I just didn't drink, you know, during the long days, long hot days in the summer. That'll just give you an idea of how naive it was and I suppose that's a possibly another byproduct of being on your own if you're with people, you know, they see these things, and um, can advise one. So again, that was just of its time, you know. So you so from that point on, you carried no water with you. I carried no water with me, no. Wow. Okay. No. And just would wait till you get to shore. Yeah, that was it. Now again, of course, the, the 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 with the nutrition and and the pace, it would have been quite slow, so it wasn't that major an issue. Again, I would be into the the the, the fat burning and all of that kind of stuff now. Mm-hmm. So no doubt, I was burning a lot of fat. I ate very little during the day as well, and I ate very little very little in the mornings. So I mainly defaulted to a kind of a one big meal in the evening if I could get it or whatever I had. And I suppose I had no nutrition pattern or no nutritional plan. But you you had a guest on there, I forget his name, who did, I think, the first solar and circumnavigation of Australia, if I remember correctly. And he yes. mentioned, he just mentioned that you can go for a long, long time without food which, of course, you can at that kind of slow, steady pace. If you are, as we say, fat-adapted, which obviously I, I was, fat, or I became fat-adapted at least during that trip. I had one episode on the East Coast, all right, where I got a bout of dizziness in fairly, not very bad weather. It kind of scared me. And I don't know what the reason for that was at the time, whether it was a mixture of fatigue or dehydration or lack of nutrition or whatever, but it might have had something to do with all of that, you know. Yeah, that's uh, so you're you're doing this trip basically on one meal a day and and no water throughout the day. Um, at times, yes. I, I used to carry maybe a bar of chocolate or something and I would carry it in my hat. That was <laughs> where my, my day food was, so to speak, because I was my own. I wasn't taken off spray decks or all that didn't have any storage on um, on me or on the boat on the deck I see people now with photographs with kind of storage in their life jackets and all that kind of stuff there, there was none of that type of none of that type of thing so again that that was just a naivety at the time and a lack of preparedness and a lack of experience walk us through the trip to the best of your recollection 44 years later um, so you started in Brandon on the on the Dingle Peninsula Yes, the trip is, um, for your guests that wouldn't be familiar with it, Ireland is was a small island by, in the bigger scheme of things, it's, is it around 100 miles, um, the circumnavigation, or 1,000 miles, I should say, some, somewhere around that. So I had planned to do um, around 25 miles a day, take your rest day every 50, that was a general plan. I had a big map of Ireland and I kind of sketched out a, plan and 25 miles a day and I had a big circle around a kind of a landing place each evening 
and then the type of fellow from there's a target there that I kind of get there come hell or high water. So I left Brandon because it was near to me. Brandon is in the southwest of Ireland. It's kind of a hopping off point. It's the nature of the west coast of Ireland, a lot of headlands, islands, big bays. So a lot of it is quite exposed. At the time, I've, I've done ultra races since and kind of my, with some of them, that cycling races, uh, I'd have said like I'd have 50% chance of getting to the start line and if, it, and if I got to the start line, the 50% chance of finishing the event. <laughs> but I think at the time I didn't actually reckon on, on being successful. I thought if I got up to Donegal to the west coast of Ireland, it would be fantastic. Yeah, I left Brandon, a small family, send off. I hit up far across the Shannon, which I didn't make the first night for whatever reason. I didn't have a good day. Anyway, just did the, the, the headland hopping, the island hopping up the west coast, which is very exposed and all of that. Again, just to give a flavour of the time it was, I had no communication, of course, there was no radios. We had no coast guard in Ireland then, so there was no kind of lookouts or nobody watching you. So basically, you're just gone and that's it. I had no way of communicating with home. I remember I landed up in somewhere in Connemara, that's in Connacht on the west coast, and I walked to Connemara Golf Club to try and get something to eat. I met a guard there, a guard there, our Irish police force, and I told him what I was at and I asked him when he got back to his station if he could ring my sister-in-law in Killarney because he would have had a, a dial telephone and my sister would have had a dial telephone. So he rang my sister and my sister would have driven out to my parents, which was 10 miles away, and told them where I was. So that's how people knew where I was at the time. So you had to walk to a golf club, find a, find a Garda. The Garda then went to the station, called your sister, and then your sister had to get in the car and drive to your parents. That, that was the flavor of it at the time, more or less, yes. That's yeah. quite, a, quite a communication network. Yes. <laughs> now, why did you start on the West Coast, the most exposed part of the trip? Well, it was in Kerry, I suppose. I wanted to start in Kerry near home. Brandon, we had Mount, we had Mount Brandon, Brandon Bay. That all comes from St. Brendan, the navigator. If your readers or your listeners haven't heard of St. Brendan, maybe your ne- next guest should be a proxy for St. Brendan. Yeah. <laughs> St. Brendan was a sailor who Tim Severn recreated. We, we came, Kerryman claimed to be the first, peop- first Europeans to reach North America through St. Brendan, who wrote this Navigatio. Tim Severn, in later years, the Voyager recreated his potential for his trip in what would be kind of a large coracle a skin-covered boat to North America. But anyway, that's by the way, but I suppose we had that awareness. He left from Brandon Creek, which is quite near Brandon Head, Brandon Point, from which I left. But it was a hopping-off point as well. You know, there's a, it was a straight line across Tralee Bay, the Shannon Estuary, towards Loop Head, which sticks away out there into the Atlantic. So it was an obvious crossing point, and I, I reckon probably a lot of the circumnavigators of Ireland would, would, would stop at Brandon all the time, you know. What scared you on the trip? I had a lot of scares, really. I had uh, a lot of very frightening times, of course, as you would have uh, rough seas and all that kind of stuff. I had a couple of scary things, like, which shouldn't be scary, really. I remember I, I pulled into somewhere in Donegal. The Ballyness Bay comes into mind, 
if it's the right name or not, it's kind of an enclosed, small enclosed bay with a, a small opening. And going out there the following day, like it went out with a rushing tide and it all looked calm and all of that. There was just a little small, what looked like a small line of breakers further out. But there was a huge rip going out with the tide and there was no turning back. And as I went out, I realised that the, the waves were very, very big coming in. So I had, I had to break through those breakers, but going over the last one, it was just at the summit of it. And at the far side of it, it just like it was like a vertical wall. You know, it was like going down, falling over a, a steep weir. It was like the boat went just vertical down into it. So that's that was a scary episode. When I came out of all that, my the water, as I said, water bottle from my deck was gone and I just didn't bother with it anymore. That was scary and it was pretty good weather, but it was just that episode with the the rip going out there meeting the um, the incoming waves you know just wasn't watching for that I had that episode with the dizziness out on the east coast which was scary in itself but I just made for sure it was grounded past and I just ignored it moved on I had an episode on the south coast with a shark which was again if I had had more experience it wouldn't have scared me it was probably a basking shark or maybe not it was kind of moving but quickly now that I think back on it, but it was just a shark came to visit, say hello, but moved on. You the usual stuff then, of course, with with uh, the, the rough periods and all of that. Lots of that, of course, which is inevitable. So you didn't really have any sea experience or very little sea experience, and now you're dealing with dealing with those waves. You're dealing with uh, currents. You're dealing with tides. How did you manage through that? I had a little bit of sea experience, not a much. I might have done what I've done half a dozen sea trips. Is <laughs> that a lot of experience? Probably not. I had quite a lot of experience in surf, I think. Okay. Uh, which probably helped with that would have been with, with a big beamy, I suppose, slalom kayak, you know, the type we had at the time. I'd done a couple of sea trips with those beamy boats. We made skigs for them. And I had the kayak of the Easter before the trip, and I did maybe a three or four day trip around Southwest Cork, Roaring Water Bay, around the Fastnet, Skull, all that territory, a kind of a shakedown trip. That was about it, really. Okay. Um, but I would have been reasonably re- well read on tides and um, wind and all that type of thing, you know. So I didn't feel naive about the sea for some reason. I think I was okay in that respect, you know. Now, the sea was used for work, and was going on the sea for pleasure really much of a thing at the time? It would have been, it would have been, yes, of course, but not not in my circles where I was growing up. Again, I suppose at the time there was a lot of small fishing villages and small fishing and things like that. So I would have come across, you know, small fishing boats that you wouldn't come across now. I found it interesting really because I bought the Admiralty Pilot uh, which, of course, would have been written back in 18-something or other, I suppose, originally, <laughs> where people used rowing boats and all of that, and, you know, a one-knot current, like, is significant if you're rowing a heavy boat. It's also significant if you're paddling. But, of course, now with motorised boats, it's not significant. I even found fishermen would have given me good advice, but they, they didn't understand the capabilities of, of the kayak either in terms of having places you can land and places you can shoot through and all of that. So I took their advice, sometimes use my own judgment, you know. But there were small fishing communities that I've, I've visited, landed, that I think wouldn't wouldn't be there anymore as active fishing communities, you know. 
So when you stopped and you, uh, and you saw the locals along the coastline, did they think you were mad? I didn't actually land in a lot of places where I met a lot of people. Okay. Um, a lot of the places on the West Coast would have been just remote. You just land in a headland or whatever, or on the beach and just camp there. You, you mightn't meet anybody. A couple of small villages, yes, you might meet people. But again, you come in, whatever, whenever you come in with the tide, do your stuff, eat or whatever, sleep. Uh, there, there isn't a lot of spare time if you're trying to move on, you know, which I was. I met people all right in, in the smaller villages, which was which was nice. I found the kind of the East Coast and the South Coast were more tourist orientated. You would meet people just, you know, like what we'd call wheel kickers, you know tire kickers just interested in the chat and what you were at I met some friends and met me in Ackill Island that's up along the west coast looking back on it how we managed to meet there or arranged a rendezvous there I have no idea she had no transport she was hitchhiking <laughs> but we we met we succeeded in meeting I had friends in Donegal and I met there and I got caught there in a storm I think I had one or two rest days there but apart from that I didn't really meet anyone that I knew, you know. I think I met somebody again in Cork that gave me some supplies on the way around on the south coast. But that was it. Uh, you wouldn't have, uh, like, no dot watchers where people are watching your progress and then be waiting to meet <laughs> you and all that type of stuff, you know. <laughs> so what gave you the most joy on the trip? Uh, joy? Do you, do you experience yeah. joy in a trip like that, John? <laughs> um I guess the experience of being able to do a trip like that, I suppose the isolation of it, that type of experience, the challenge of it, relatively cheaply at the time, it cost me a lot of money because I was only started working then. But you would have to travel a long way now to get the same type of experience. So I think that was worthwhile. Now you mentioned isolation. Um, did it really feel isolated or were there villages and such along the coast enough to the point where you felt connected? No, it was isolated, but I'm I'm happy in my own company. That wouldn't bother me really. I feel a lot more isolated in the, um, say, the more tourist areas where there are a lot of people around, but you don't actually talk to anybody much. Okay. And th that felt more isolating, to be honest with you. There had been lots of places that had landed where there was nothing there, uh, maybe a stony beach or something like that, and just you're on your own with the beach and whatever, the wind and all the rest of it. Like, like all these trips, the best part of it is that Everything is stripped down to very, very basic things. Priorities in this case are, first of all, wind, um, then food probably, shelter, sea condition. That's about it. Just the the navigation, where you're going, what the forecast is. If you're somewhere to sleep, staying warm, food. Life becomes very, very simple. Returning to the real world after a lot of these trips is, is more difficult than, than, than going on the trip in the first place. That is a big advantage of it. And I suppose, again, you know, in the modern era, that's difficult to do because there is just so much communication. I found the same experience with self-supported ultra bike races. Life gets very basic. And uh, if you're away for a good number of days doing something like that, priorities become very, very few. Returning to the reality of living is... <laughs> Not so, not so appealing after some experience like that. <laughs> so navigation, I'm, I'm assuming, was pretty simple. You're going clockwise, keep land on your right. Not so simple, I found out, because I discovered 
actually on the, that shakedown trip, when you're looking inland from the sea and there are islands that you can't see that it's an island. <laughs> it's, uh-huh. <laughs> but it was pretty straightforward. It was line of sight most times. I had um, sea charts on, on the deck. I'd eventually envisaged being, just to rewind a little bit, I had envisaged being the first to canoe around Ireland with a group or whatever. And then I discovered that in, was it in 78, a group from the Channel Islands did the trip. And I met them actually on their trip and I corresponded with them subsequently. And they were quite helpful, even if discouraging. They still thought I was mad to do it solo. And they were very <laughs> experienced guys. I thought they were the bee's knees because they kind of, on the Channel Islands, they were, they kind of knew what they were doing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, where I obviously didn't and to clue what I was doing. I bought their sea charts from them, which would be an old black and white admiralty charts, laminated, okay. just uh, on the deck with shock cards and I had a compass. So I had, I had um, just the bearings on that. Anytime there was fog, then I'd cut some fog on the south coast, all right, southwest coast. So that was just on a wing and a prayer, you know. I'd have been reasonably okay, okay with tides, just watching the tide streams, trying to make the best of the tides. Again, got that wrong sometimes as well, of course, which makes life difficult, especially after the end of a long day, if you don't make it, because there are very strong tides in parts of this trip. Now, coming from the Republic of, Republic of Ireland, going through and around Northern Ireland, was that a challenge at all? Yes, actually, looking back on it, it was. That was 1979, and we had then what we called the Troubles in the North of Ireland. So there was a lot of conflict at the time. There was It was a height of a period of sectarian murders, uh, people being getting killed for their political affiliations, which was aligned with religion and all of that. So it, it was a very tense period up there then. I had a very deep southern accent, South of Ireland accent, which would kind of mark me as, a, I suppose, as a Republican background, uh, which, of course, was not necessarily the case. You just had the feeling you wouldn't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was a Coast Guard in the north of Ireland. Again, for your, for your listeners, the, the, the north of Ireland, six counties of the north of Ireland are part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, part of Great Britain. Um, a different political jurisdiction to the Republic of Ireland. The Again, the police force and the army up there would have been viewed again by Republicans as being sectarian, with certain elements, of course, not all of them, that later proved to be the case, uh, with uh, the security forces being involved, colluding in sectarian murders and all of that. So I was quite wary and nervous in the north of Ireland. When I got there, I telephoned the Coast Guard because they had a Coast Guard up there, which had been the British Coast Guard. I said, look, what I'm at, and um, they weren't really interested, but they said, we'd, we'd advise you to ring the, the military or the police and advise them what you're doing. And my kind of gut instinct was, no, I don't want the police or the military to know what I'm doing either, you know. So it was a kind of a furtive a trip through the north. Of course, that's being not fair to the people of Northern Ireland who are just decent people, by and large, like everybody else, you know, but that was just a feeling of the, of the time. Plus, it's quite challenging up there around the northwest coast, Rattlin Island, all of that. Very strong currents and tides up there. It's one of the more challenging parts of the trip. A beautiful coastline, one of the more interesting parts of the coastline. Scotland is quite near, you can see Scotland. Um, so, yes, again, that was just part of the experience at the time. Tell me about the clothing that you had at the time. <laughs> the clothing? I had pair of woolly socks. 
a pair of sneakers, tracksuit bottom, some kind of, um, I suppose not what we call a base layer, a woolly jumper, a hat, and I suppose a windproof top for when I needed it. That was it really. I had um, some set of dry clothes then for evening time. Still one set of dry clothes. So just two pair, two sets of clothing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm. How many days? I think 48 days come to mind. Maybe 49. I have a feeling 48 days, yeah. So 48, 49 days, same set of clothing the entire time um, on the water and same set of clothing off the water. Yeah, I did get them washed once now, mind you. I had, <laughs> I, just, I, I had to stop in Dublin. I stayed with an uncle there and Anne met me there and I think I got everything washed there once. I might have even washed myself there once. <laughs> um, but um, again, like, it's just part of the the simplicity of it. I had, by the time I finished, I had loads of room on the boat. I'd say the boat was kind of half empty, to be honest with you. Yeah, in the morning, clothes are wet, put on wet clothes. They're warm after a little while. Uh, <laughs> would it be obviously be way more comfortable now? I had a decent sleeping bag. I had a tent, but I just used the um, fly sheet after the first day or two, I think. I did put up the inner, I think, once or twice in storms. So was it at least a, a nylon tent, or were you dealing with a canvas tent? No, I had a nylon fly sheet. I was okay. a little bit more sophisticated <laughs> than the canvas tent, yes. It was a one-man, a one-man light tent, yeah. And what's this I hear about you stopping along the way for cigarette breaks? Oh, I did. Was I smoking at the time? I was actually, yes. I probably didn't stop for cigarette breaks, but I did I did have cigarettes. I kept them in my cap, I remember, to keep them dry. <laughs> it, was driest, it was the driest place to keep things. Yeah, you had everything uh, in there. Cigarettes, I Mars bars. Uh, Mars bars, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't smoke a lot, I think, but now that you mention it, I was smoking, yeah. In okay. fact, there's a photograph there somewhere of me before I left taking the boat off the, off the kayak, yeah. <laughs> well, this is quite a trip. 48, 49 days. Um, would you do it again? Um, I had thought about doing it again just for the fun of it. Like, it wouldn't intimidate me. Um, I wouldn't do it now because I'm too battered, you know. I probably could do it if I got down to it and got trained a bit, but it would take me a long time to get fit. It wouldn't intimidate me to do it alone again. Or I, it occurred to me to just do it again afterwards a couple of times, you know. But um, maybe that's naivety as well. It's better off <laughs> better to move on and do other things. Knowing that it's a different time and, and kid is different and clothing is different and everything, communication is different, absolutely everything is different. What recommendations might you have for someone who's doing the trip today? I just do it and enjoy it. Just get reasonably well prepared. The boats are looking at the boats now. What I, what I notice, I see boats, kayaks regularly, and roof racks, and that's where I live. What strikes me, what I was really missing at the time was a rudder. There weren't any rudders in the boats then, and the north cap then, the the one that I had anyway was there. There was one major flaw in it, in that um, on on short choppy waves it wanted to turn to run parallel with the waves it was quite difficult to get it to turn into waves uh, those short steep choppy type of waves you know where you're a quartering wind in that type of wave it was very very difficult to deer a course and it took a lot of kind of sweep strokes which were very hard on the stomach to steer a course 
the, the skeg that time on it went went all the way back and was vertical, so there was a very deep skeg in it. To me, it was a design flaw at the time. If I were doing again with that boat, I'd have cut away half of that, which wouldn't have given the same straight line stability, but would have had made more versatile. There, there was a technique with that of kind of pivoting over the top of a wave when it would be just on the peak of the wave you could kind of yank it into the into the wave more but that was a flaw in it so the gear now is um obviously communications everything is is uh, much much easier but when you're you're still you're still alone on the sea like in a small boat you know so that that is the challenge of it but you just go for it doesn't have to be complicated can make it as simple as you like just look back in the bed at it and go and do it within your means do it the way that you enjoy doing it again as i say i, I envy those people who take a lot of time and enjoy it and do it in different ways and again i find very interesting the people who do it as fast as they can that's another type of challenge as well i've tried to do that with bike racing and all of that so i'd be into that as well so there's no right way no wrong way just Get your buzz, get your difference, whatever way you like. Yeah. Each person is seeking their own experience. So precisely. And enjoy enjoy the experience. I have again with bike racing and that, I don't have a lot of tolerance for people who go on at length about how hard it is and all the suffering and all of that. I learned in bike racing to develop a lot of kind of mental strategies, positive self talk and all of that. You know, the two two of the main things I would say to myself is when I start feeling sorry for myself is, you know, you don't have to do this. Like, this isn't hard. In fact, a lot of the things like this that we do, we're escaping from hard because, you know, for a lot of people, regular life is hard. Just doing the ordinary, everyday work, family and all of those, sustaining all of those, like, that's hard. What we do with this type of thing, it's hard because we want it to be hard. We don't have to do it. If you're just feeling sorry for yourself, you just say, look, you don't have to do this. Nobody's making you do it. The other thing I say every moment that we do it, we're never going to experience this moment again, be it good or bad, you know. So just relish that moment, absorb it, because it's it's never going to happen again. This is true. Where where can listeners find you? Uh, I'm not big on social media or all that. I have... I'm on Facebook and all of that. I have a website, um, Masters Cycling Coaching. I'll be accessible through that. Email address is Tom G. Daly. G for Gerard, Tom G. Daly, 2014 at uh, gmail.com. And the 2014 is because I retired formally from work in 2014 and had to change my email address. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my new email address. Right. TomGDaily2014 at gmail.com. So I'd be happy to, to communicate with anybody who's interested. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and uh, to learn about your trip in 1979, 48, 49 days around Ireland. And uh, what an experience. That's, this, is, this has been fun. Uh, one final question that I have for you, that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I don't follow the sea now. I followed some of your podcasts because obviously I have an interest in it and I, I have an interest in any life story, you know, the, the human element of it. Mm-hmm. It's always fascinating no matter what it, what it involves. But the, the I was interested in those guys from Jersey that uh, did the first circumnavigation in 78, if I'm correct. I did the first solo in 79 
And I met those guys and I stayed in touch with them. Uh, again, I have correspondence from them and I used their charts and all of that. Uh, one of those guys was Franco Ferreira, which I think, who I think stayed in the game. So Franco would be interesting to hear from, especially his perspective on the time and the place as well. I don't know how many of your listeners are interested in kind of uh, vintage stuff, let's put it that way. No, I think it's a, I think uh, it's a great interest. Yes, so Franco might be interesting. All right. And again, as I said, he would have a more longer term view of it because he stayed in the game, I think, much longer than I did. All right. Well, I know Franco is still active, so uh, I will reach out to him and uh, we'll see if we can get Franco on the, on the show. Thank you again, Tom. It's been wonderful speaking with you and learning about your trip and, uh, and your experience and uh, your advice for future paddlers. Thank you, John. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Well, that certainly was a proper adventure at a far different time in sea kayaking's history, certainly simpler than today's social media-fueled expeditions. It's a really interesting comparison, and it doesn't make one better than the other, just different. And I really do think that the Irish Canoe Union's position is different now on solos as well. Following that solo, Tom has continued growth in sports to become one of the world's most accomplished masters cyclists and ultra-endurist cyclists, coach, and researcher on physiological adaptation to training in older athletes. Visit the show notes for this episode for more information on Tom's Masters Cycling Coaching website. Thanks again to our partners at OnlineSeaKayaking.com for extending a special offer just for you. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and to the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. For our next episode, we'll come back to the USA and talk about a much different type of trip, this time a seven-month solo canoe odyssey down the Missouri River with Mark Spitzer. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.